what are what are those measurements typically for a business? So the very first question is, what is the cash flow? Because mm-hmm. that is what the buyer is buying. They're acquiring a cash flow. And the cash flow leading to the value, we are typically looking at the historical performance. In the world of big businesses like publicly traded companies, they tend to look at the future, right? And here's here's the big difference is if you're going to buy stock in Coca-Cola, the current management leadership, all those people are going to be there before and after you make the purchase of those shares. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about a small Main Street business, all of the brain trust of leadership departs when you buy it and you have to replace it with yourself. So we don't mm-hmm. typically look at the future. We look at, at what you're getting, what's been proven. So the cash flow determines the price. And then the next two questions are important because the next question is, Will the cash flow continue under my stewardship? Mm-hmm. And so this is the question that the buyer has to ask. Hello, and welcome to the Generate Your Value podcast. I'm your co-host, Andy McDowell, founder and owner of Generate Your Value, providing life, leadership, and small business coaching services in the Atlanta area. And I'm Zach Levy, your other co-host. I run a nationwide financial service business with my wife, Megan. Together, Zach and I have the intention to bring you tips, concepts, ideas, suggestions, stories, and analogies from A to Z, which will help you to grow your personal brand and small business in such a way that joy, happiness, and success as you define it for yourself are achieved. We hope to use our gifts, talents, and experiences in business to generate value in your life. And with that being said, let's move to our topic for today. Welcome to the Generate Your Value podcast. My name is Andy McDowell, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. We can't thank you enough, and we're eternally grateful that you decided to take time out of your important and busy day to spend it with us on the topic we're about to to speak to our guest today about. Our guest is David Barnett, going to talk to us today about buying, merging, and acquiring companies. I haven't had a guest on yet on this important topic. And when his name came across my email, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Get this guy on. <laughs> Finally, somebody could talk about this subject. And it, it's near to dear to my heart because I got to participate in a couple of these uh, one-on-one side being acquired and as well as on the other side of acquiring in my corporate entrepreneurial and corporate career. And it's very fascinating to watch through process and things come into play that you don't necessarily think come into play. At least I was shocked and surprised at times in my first one where we were acquired. Some of the things, some of the tea leaves, if you will, to get uncovered, looking around at a business. I was quite surprised. It makes sense to me now, but at the time, as if you will, a virgin in the process, had no idea these were important things when it comes to buying the business. So before I bring him in, let me read you some of David's bio. I'm not going to read all of it because I, I want him to fill in the, the the remaining pieces that he feels like are, are important in the first question. So David's been working with small and medium-sized businesses for over 20 years. He's a three-time best-selling author, has written eight books. He likes to shed light on the complex and sometimes tricky process of buying, selling, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. 
After a career in advertising sales, he started several businesses, including a commercial debt brokerage. Helping to finance small and medium-sized businesses led to the field of business brokerage. So with that being said, David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. I failed to mention he's a Canadian. He's up in New Brunswick. We're recording this at the very end of March, and he says we're starting to see the top of the of the grass. That's a good sign. Spring <laughs> is on the way. <laughs> hey, Andy, thanks for having me. I was uh, two weeks ago. I was down in Florida with my kids during their school break, and so mm. it, was, it was nice to get a reprieve from the cold. Yeah, it's blowing snow right now, but earlier today it was above freezing, and it was great. I took a walk. It was really nice. So is New Brunswick, is that more like a maritime kind of yeah. climate? We're, we're how how much snow we're would you say that you typically get in the winter? So I live in Moncton, and they mm-hmm. say that the Canadian snow belt runs from Moose Jaw to Moncton. Mm-hmm. And, and just a little drive from here, in a couple of directions, you get close to the water. And when you get close to the water, the temperature of the water moderates the snow. And so... yeah. Cities like St. John that are on the Bay of Fundy or Halifax, mm-hmm. it's on the Atlantic Ocean. They they won't get as much snow accumulation typically in a winter as we will. Right. Uh, but there have been years where we have had so much snow that, you know, you can walk up snow banks onto people's roofs uh, of their houses. So, you know, it, it can get dangerous, you know, around wow. street corners because you can't see the traffic coming and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. This year has been very mild. This year, I only had my snowblower out three times. So everything else was just a mild, you know, small amount that I could push with the shovel. But well, I think the whole Northeast yeah. East was that way. I think New York City, it took forever yeah. for them to get their first, first snowstorm this winter. I just think the Northeast has gotten it on the mild side compared to what we saw yeah, and, in and- Buffalo. <laughs> well, typically, whatever they say is happening in New York and Boston, yeah. we get it like a day, 12 to 18 hours later, because yeah, all yeah. of that stuff comes right up the coast. Yeah. But then we also get the storms that come, you know, from up the St. Lawrence, like from Toronto, Montreal, they come Montreal. this way too. So, yeah. so this is, I think, why we kind of get it with the snow, because we get all the storms. Yeah. Well, our listening audiences used to be talking about the weather first, so let's move on. <laughs> there won't be anything <laughs> Anything new to our listening audience, but let's start off with, we're very much like stories on this podcast uh, to tell stories, uh, allows our audience to sort of connect with our guests and so forth. So everybody heard the bio piece, but what would you like to fill in about your entrepreneurial journey? What what drove yeah, you to, sure. to be an entrepreneur? What Was it a moment? Was it a process? What What got you started? Well, it was a it was an evolution. You know, it's it's funny. You ever have one of those conversations about nature versus nurture? You know, how does mm-hmm. a person end up being the way they are? Yeah. So when I was when I was growing up, my mom was a stay at home mom, and my dad was an engineer that worked for a federal government department. Mm-hmm. And so there there was not a whole lot of entrepreneurialism going on in the house. But I was always looking for ways to hustle and make money. I was you know cleaning snow as a teenager and delivering flyers and getting my hands into every kind of business. And by the time I was in high school, I knew I was interested in business. And uh, I should have opened by saying, I'm actually adopted. And in my, when I got into my 20s, when I was well into my entrepreneurial career, I made contact with my the paternal side of my biological family. Mm-hmm. And you want to know something funny, Andy? What's that, that? All of them, entrepreneurs. 
home builders, auto repair, business owners, developers, like the whole lot of them, business owners. And so I, I found that very interesting, you know, but I was interested in business from the time I was a child, decided to go to business school because I thought that's how you became a businessman. Mm-hmm. Only later to realize that what they do there is not business. They turn you into what I now affectionately call a fortune 500 bureaucrat where they teach you how to be a middle manager in a big organization. You know, you spend your time doing case studies on whether General Electric should enter this new international market or something. But my my heart and my interest was always in the local businesses that you see when you drive down the main boulevard of any town. And so I was really fortunate when I got out of university to end up working for the Yellow Pages. I was an account rep. And so my job was to go and visit the owners and managers of these very businesses that I was interested in sit and talk with them and figure out how they made money, what kind of customers they were trying to attract to try to serve them and, and find those customers. But, you know, the internet developing, this would this would have been the early 2000s. So the internet being what it was and how it was developing, I realized Yellow Pages was probably going the way of the dinosaur at some point. So I left, got into business, became a finance broker, which you mentioned, and the big financial crisis of 08, 09 is what ended that career because I was using a lot of these B category lenders to mm-hmm. help businesses get capital, either loans, lines of credit, or like operating leases on equipment, for example. And so the, the subprime crisis took all those guys down with it. And it was in that time that I noticed all these people that were trying to do these business buy-sell deals of, of Main Street businesses. And... I didn't know how to be a business broker, but I knew from my experience in education and business that these people I was running into, they obviously didn't know how to be a business broker either because they weren't putting the deals together very well and some Mm. pretty bad things were happening. People were losing deposits. People were buying businesses with no consideration for operating capital. All kinds of bad stuff was happening. And I thought, this is a market that needs to be served. My brokerage business is not doing very well. So I decided to get into it. I joined up with a big international business brokerage franchise because they gave me access to training. And I actually ended up down in Atlanta for part of that training. Atlanta, Orlando, and Ottawa, those three cities, I spent a week in each doing training Mm -hmm. and became certified to help people buy and sell businesses. I did that for three years. And it was really exciting because being a business broker is trying to foresee the solution to a puzzle without knowing who the other party is that you have to dovetail into this deal. But once you meet the buyer, you have to figure out what kind of deal will work for both people and then try to try to guide the two parties through their negotiation to that outcome that might be palatable to both people. And then you have to demonstrate that it should also be palatable to their attorneys and their accountants and any other advisors they might have, their partners, their spouses, et cetera. And so it's really complicated. It takes a long time. There were several deals I worked on for years and you only get paid at the end. And so what I'll say about business brokerage is that it's very interesting and it's a terrible business to be in, especially if you have two young children and you're trying to run a household because <laughs> it's the ultimate roller coaster cash flow kind of business. Yeah. And and so I did that for three years, sold 36 companies and thought this is nuts. I can't even make a household budget because the cash flow is so inconsistent. Mm-hmm. So I left and became a banker. And then four years later Everyone just kept calling me on my phone looking for help with these deals that they were doing. One day, the bank decided to reorganize and they were offering packages. So I took that opportunity to create 
a new kind of business. And so now I still help people buy and sell businesses, but I operate as a consultant and not as a broker. And so it's a, it's a very different kind of value proposition that I bring to people. And um, I, I kind of use the business model of attorneys. So it's, I, I break down the process into multiple stages and I just say to people, here's the menu. You want my help with these parts? This is what I charge. You want me my help with these parts? Mm-hmm. This is what I charge. And so the big difference for me is that I'm billing people every week for the help that I give them. So I don't have that cash flow roller coaster. Yep. And the yep. advantage for my clients is that mm-hmm. you know they can get access to my help for a lot less than it would ultimately end up costing you know if they were using a broker and, and successfully completed a deal and paid a commission. One of the downsides to the whole business brokerage model is that because only the successful transactions end up getting paid for, effectively what happens is people who have successful, profitable businesses that are desirable end up subsidizing the broker's time spent with businesses that have a hard time selling because a lot of brokers will spend time on deals that never get completed. Mm -hmm. How do they live? How do they make it? Well, they make it because of the commissions they earn on the successful businesses. So it's it's kind of an interesting thing that I never really considered until I was in the business and I realized, hey, you know, the the people with the winning businesses, they're footing the bill for all this other stuff I'm doing at the end of the day. Yeah, would you say there's some similarity to the real estate market? It it definitely Being like a real estate agent, of, right? It it basically the business evolved by by copying what happens in real estate. And there in certain places is trying to evolve beyond that. But I, you know, up until a couple generations ago, you know, before the 1970s, like small businesses really didn't get bought or sold. You know, they were handed down or they Mm -hmm. would close and liquidate. The concept of, you know, I'm going to find a buyer for my successful business and train them how to operate it and and it holds some kind of value beyond just the stuff that it owns. Right. A lot of this has really evolved in the last 50 years or so. Yeah, that's a good segue into my my next question. If I wanted to go buy a diamond, the typical thing that people are going to look at is the three C's, cut clarity color. You know, cut being sort of the shape, shape of the diamond and how the edges or surfaces are created, you know, clarity is the the brilliance of it and the color, whether it's got some yellow in it or it's pure white or whatever from that perspective. And that sort of been the standard that's been created for measuring the value of a diamond. So what using that as sort of an intro analogy, what typically is a is a company looked at in terms of its value? You know, what measurements Sure. Like cut clarity color is for diamond. What are what are those measurements typically for a business? So the very first question is what is the cash flow? Because mm-hmm. that is what the buyer is buying. They're acquiring a cash flow. And the cash flow leading to the value, we are typically looking at the historical performance. In the world of big businesses like publicly traded companies, they tend to look at the future, right? And here's here's the big difference is if you're going to buy stock in Coca-Cola, the current management leadership, all those people are going to be there before and after you make the purchase of those shares. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about a small Main Street business, 
all of the brain trust of leadership departs when you buy it and you have to replace it with yourself. So we don't mm-hmm. typically look at the future. We look at what you're getting, what's been proven. So the cash flow determines the price. And then the next two questions are important because the next question is, will the cash flow continue under my stewardship? Mm-hmm. And so this is the question that the buyer has to ask. And sometimes when we get really small businesses where the owner has some kind of technical skill, really they can, the, the own business can only be sold to a, maybe a younger person with the same or similar kind of technical skill, right? Because they're going to be able to answer that second question with a yes. Yeah, I'll be able to carry on. Mm-hmm. And the third question is, do I want the hassle of trying to run it? So what is the cash flow? Will the cash flow continue? And is it going to be horrendously difficult for me to take the reins of this thing? And so if the answer to number, the second question is, no, it won't continue, then no no one's going to buy it. That well, that person isn't going to buy it. They're going to back away from the deal. The, the answer to number three, is it going to be difficult for me to take the reins? That can be addressed by business owners by creating proper systems and processes and that kind of thing yep. within the business. I When I do presentations to business owners, I put a picture of a Monopoly board game up on the screen. And I just say, you know, what would happen if if you bought this product and it didn't come with an instruction book? You know, you would, it would be difficult to figure out, you know, how do we make this work? What are we supposed to do, right? And you might meet someone that had played it before who could give you some pointers, but we couldn't rely on everything they said. The instructions are what is important. And so that's a way that business owners can deal with that last concern about how difficult will it be to run is to get themselves organized. And what will typically happen is if people don't feel comfortable with that question about cash flow continuing or about the operational tools that are in the business, they may still decide to make an offer. It's just that the either the price or the terms are not going to be as palatable to the seller. And that's an, that's another big thing when it comes to business. As you mentioned, that you were involved in a business acquisition and they were mm-hmm. did a very exhaustive examination. We call that a due diligence. Yep. In the world of very small businesses, you know, I, I call them main street businesses. So typically with a with a cash flow to the owner under half a million dollars. It is very expensive and difficult to do a thorough and exhaustive due diligence. Big companies will do it because they're talking about millions of dollars. So spending hundreds of thousands of dollars doing a due diligence makes mm-hmm. sense. But in, in the world that I operate in, you know, if you start to have to spend five figures with attorneys and accountants and different people, it can make the deal uneconomical. And so the way we deal with a lot of these problems is through deal structure by basically taking things that the seller says at face value, but then we make the seller finance part of the transaction and make that seller financing subject to offset in the case there's been some misrepresentation in any of these declarations mm-hmm. or or information. So it's, it's kind of a, a cheaper workaround and it, it really is designed to incentivize the seller to have an aligned interest with the buyer because the only way the seller is going to see all their money is if the buyer is successful. And so it really creates a relationship where the seller is incentivized to be helpful, to teach the buyer as much as possible, to act as a coach and mentor to the buyer. When these deals are set up, set up successfully, buyers and sellers usually end up becoming friends because they spend a lot of time together. And from the seller's perspective, 
you know, they're not going to choose to lend just anyone money to buy their business. They want to be confident that the person they select is going to be qualified and going to be able to, mm-hmm. to do it, to run the business successfully. And so just having a seller that agrees to this kind of arrangement is a huge vote of confidence for the buyer. Yeah. And in the acquisition that I was involved in was a corporation buying small business owned by two gentlemen. And they contracted those two gentlemen to stick around for a year running the business and developing a management team that could take over once that one-year period was over to help ensure, take that risk, uh, yeah. if you will, away from the deal. Being they didn't really have anybody in the company that was that had the background of what we did. We, we did sort of ancillary on the side, but not directly. And so that's how they were able to structure the deal, as you say, to minimize risk. Yeah. And and that that type of arrangement happens in a lot of cases where maybe some of the systems and processes aren't properly set up. And, you know, you may not have had, may not have been privy to all the details of the deal, but usually deals like that involve significant holdbacks against certain mile posts being reached. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the seller wouldn't get all their money until, you know, a whole list of things had been achieved. And I, I think they had those. I, I, you're right. I don't know the details, but I think they had some mileposts in that 12-month period that had to be reached before yeah. another cash and outlay would be given to them. What, what, what I say to a lot of business owners is that, you know, if you, if you plan out your your exit plan. If you think about what it's going to be like to sell your business and you realize what kinds of things a buyer is going to demand, you can start to implement those things sooner. And when you start to create things like operating procedures and you know properly defined job descriptions, org charts, all of this kind of thing, what you actually end up with in addition to better being better prepared to sell the business is you often end up with a business that's easier to run and manage. And and you can often uncover problems in the business and make your business better and more profitable. Mm-hmm. And th- the real meat of business ownership for small businesses is not in the exit. We all we all hear these stories of people in Silicon Valley, Valley like you know Mark Zuckerberg or whatever is going to sell their business for billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. In the world of small business, we're talking about an asset that is so risky that the multiples that these things trade at are quite low. So the real meat of being in business, the real meat of ownership is in the ownership and operation. And so you want to be as profitable as you can, as soon as you can, and then take chips off the table, You know, have earnings that you can remove from the company to build other wealth elsewhere. And then if you sell, that's that, that should be seen as a bonus because a lot of the times, small businesses, given their risk profile, something happens and they end up closing. And I really business owners against the idea that my business is valuable, I'm going to sell it, and that will be my retirement package. Because the statistics are scary. 80% of businesses listed on platforms online, these big business for sale websites, don't sell. And so you really have to think about what it is you do, who a potential buyer might be, what the deal might look like for them. Can I give you a quick example of an exercise I went through recently with someone? Yeah, please do. Yeah. So it was a small town food business. So it was a little restaurant and they had a prime location, especially for tourist season. They were right by the 
the fishermen's docks and all the people come walking along the water and they love to stop in there. And they really take advantage of this prime location. And for the summer tourist season anyway, they make a lot of money. And in the winter, they can actually close up for a couple of months. And so it's a nice business in that respect. And they had this idea that their business is worth a lot of money, et cetera. And I, and I asked them a few questions. I said, you know, what do you do all day? Well, they actually work in the business, husband and wife team. So he's in the back, she's in the front. They have other employees that join them during mm-hmm. the busy time, mm-hmm. but they're in there doing work. And I said, okay, who is the ideal person to take over from you? And they didn't hesitate. They said, it's someone with some degree of experience in the food service or hospitality industry. And I said, great. So what you're telling me is somebody who today is working in a kitchen somewhere, or maybe they're a waiter, or maybe they're a bartender, that person is going to be the ideal buyer for your business. They said, yeah. I said, the thing about hospitality is that these people often work for rather low wages. So when that person is ready to make a move and get out of their job and buy a business, we can't expect that they're going to have a large down payment. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I was kind of like painting the picture of what this person was going to look like. You know, no big company was going to come and buy their restaurant. No big chain was going to come and buy their restaurant. It was going to be another person like them. And it was probably going to be a person who maybe saved for a decade to get ten or twenty thousand dollars together. And because it's in the food service industry, you know, banks don't particularly like that kind of industry. It's very oh. difficult to get financing. And so I was I was explaining to them like, in all likelihood, the person who buys your business is going to have a very small down payment. They're not going to qualify for a mortgage to buy the building. So how can we make this affordable for them? You're going to have to take their down payment. You're going to have to probably receive other payments from them over time for the balance of whatever you sell the business for. And you can't expect that they're going to be able to get the building at the same time. So you're going to have to become their landlord. And so it can be a nice sort of semi-retirement kind of exit for you because you can get some money, get these payments over time, become a landlord, get some passive income that way. Once this new operator has two or three years of financial statements under their own belt, under their own operation of the business, Mm -hmm. then they should be able to go and get a mortgage at the bank and buy the building from you, right? Right. And so I'm painting this picture of a process that could take four or five years, right? And and the the issue is, is that so many business owners, you know, that book, E-Myth by Michael Gerber, he describes them as the technician rather than the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these people are working in their business. They're expert at what their business does, but they're not an expert at this. And so they kind of approach it. You alluded earlier to business brokers being kind of like real estate agents. Well, businesses and real estate are nothing alike. Buildings are tangible, solid objects. Businesses have receivables, employees, payables, inventory, right? But most small business owners who've never been party to a transaction, in their mind, they actually liken it to something like selling a house. And so they think it's going to be similar, that they're going to find someone who likes the business. That person's going to go off, have meetings somewhere with a bank somewhere, show up then at maybe at an escrow company or an attorney's office with a big check and that you're going to get the check and go away. And then you've sold the business. And it's not like that at all in the world of small and lower middle market businesses. These things take time and they work much better if you're properly prepared. And if you foresee what you're going to be going into, you can really have your expectations set in a much better way. 
one of the most tragic experiences that I ha- that I see for business owners is that they will list their business for sale or they'll they'll advertise it for sale on one of these online websites and they'll they'll spend years looking for the buyer and they'll meet different people who might make different offers and they reject them all or people can't get financing and then they'll go online they'll start asking questions like what is going on why can't I sell this business and then they might stumble across my YouTube channel they'll reach out to me and I'll say, send me your information. I want to see what a buyer sees. I'll meet with them and I'll say, okay, these are the reasons why your business is probably worth about 300 grand, but you're asking five, right? So you're asking too much. At 300 grand, that's not even a cash price. Here's the likely scenario that you're going to exit your business with. Here's a reasonable offer. Someone might give you, you know, half down and half over a period of a couple of years. Or maybe if they can get an SBA loan, maybe you're going to get 70 or 80% on closing day. You're still going to have to hold some paper. They're going to have to have a certain down payment. And, and I've heard this from more than one seller when I've gone through this exercise where they say, oh my God, I met someone a year ago who made me an offer like that. And it was actually a reasonable offer for them to exit the business. But the problem was, is they didn't recognize it as a reasonable offer because their expectations had not been properly set. They didn't know what they were going to be getting from the market. That, To me, that's really tragic because when people do finally put their businesses up on the market, it's usually because of one of five common reasons. I lump burnout, boredom, and fatigue into one group. Then there's divorce, poor health, the need to relocate, and retirement. And of those five reasons, only one of them is planned for, retirement. The other four reasons are things that happen just because of things in life. And so oftentimes... People have no interest in selling the business. They're just operating it. And then boom, one of these things happens. The spouse becomes ill. You become ill. All of a sudden you realize you've got no more enthusiasm for the business. You don't want to manage it anymore. You don't want to deal with the employees anymore. And then you decide to put the business up for sale. Now, all of a sudden you have to scramble to gather the information, to get everything ready, et cetera, et cetera. So if if you can get out there and have a reasonable asking price and a reasonable expectation of what's going to happen, you can sell a business fairly quickly. But for these guys who get stuck for two years trying to sell with that personal thing hanging over them the whole time, eventually, a lot of the times when the people get into these situations, they just end up closing. And it really is a tragedy because people lose their jobs and, and, and there's value there in a lot of these businesses that never gets to be realized. Yeah, you're you're going down the road answering a question I had for you coming into the interview. Let me take it a step further. I start I start a business in my 20s. It's a family business, or I consider it a family business. Build it up through through the years. I have children who fingers fingers crossed. The goal of the game plan is to hand the business over to a child to continue it when I feel like it's <laughs> my body can't handle it anymore or I'm, I'm ready to go have some fun and vacation with the wife or whatever kinds of things that that particular mindset as you're building the business doesn't necessarily take into account everything that you just listed, right? Divorce, health, uh, things that come out of the blue that we didn't take into account. It's not part of our mindset or, or vision. 
for the business? Is it important for if somebody does have that goal that they want to keep it a family business and hand it off to the kids down the road that they should still build a business in such a way or have it in their mind that, yeah, that's my goal, but life happens. And I mean, yeah, it gets stuck yeah. in a position where I don't even get to that point because something happened in life and I've got to bail out. And so it's important to keep these things in mind that handing it over to the kids is truly a celebration because you made it, but I built the business in such a way that if something out of left field comes, I can yank the cord, so to speak, and still get something out, out, out of the business, even though I wasn't required per se to do that because of what my end goal was. Well, I mean, let's let's hone in on this word business hmm. because a lot of people don't actually set out to build a business. What they set out to do is acquire an income or build a lifestyle. Sure, which which is different than building a business. Change the because time for you, money. Yeah, if, if because so they end up creating a, a job for themselves, which provides for them and their family, and 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 a lot of people. You know, they they make a business plan, they work and hustle really hard. All of a sudden they get to the point where they're earning the money they need to to have that satisfactory living. So they're mm-hmm. earning a hundred grand or whatever it is the number for, that they need where they live. And uh, and then often the planning and the plotting and the business plan all stop. Right. And they just kind of they they just drive that car and they just keep going and going and going until something happens and then they think, Can I sell this to someone? Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I think the real difference is if you are setting out to build a business and you're thinking about the organization and the structure and how things will be done and how the customers will be served and who's going to serve them, as you grow that, you can actually work yourself out of the day-to-day. And so the ultimate expression of a well-planned business is one that doesn't actually need to be sold because you can retire while other people continue to run it. You can still own the thing without mm-hmm. actually working in it, mm-hmm. right? And and a business like that can be handed on to the next generation, whether or not the kids want to be involved in the day-to-day. Right, right. right. To be a true architect the, of the business. Yeah. And and the when you sell a business, I mentioned earlier that businesses, small businesses sell for rather low multiples. And that is because of all the risk involved in this kind of asset. But there are ways to transfer ownership of a small business that actually remove the risk for the buyer. So I'll give you an example. You know that you want to retire from your business, and let's say you do work in it, and you thought your children might want it, but they don't. So what are you going to do? Well, you find someone who you think might be a good person to run the business, and you allow them to become a small minority partner. Now the two of you are running this business, and the older partner has all the experience the wisdom, the expertise, the knowledge, the newer person brings ambition and energy and all that kind of stuff. And so now you can then start to grow the business even more. So over the next couple of years, what happens is as you have distributions from the business, both partners get it according to how many shares they own or the percentage of ownership. The smaller partner keeps using their distributions to buy more shares from the more senior person but the business is becoming more valuable as time goes on. And so the senior person sells their first shares for a little bit of money, but then by the time they sell their last shares, five or six or 10 years later, they're worth considerably more. 
it's a good deal for the person who's buying because they never actually have to assume everything all at once and hope that it's going to work for them. Mm-hmm. They have a plan that actually provides for how the business is going to be, how their acquisition will be financed through their own dividends or, or distributions, for example. And so that person can grow into becoming the owner while the old owner exits. But that takes planning. It takes forethought. And it takes a desire to go out and find that right, per- the correct person. So there's there's a lot of elements that have to be put into place. I always say that a plan that you can actually follow, that you have control over the timeliness and different elements, can sometimes be a lot better than a plan that where you rely on a lot of unknown factors. So if someone says, "I'm going to put the business up for sale and sell it to a stranger I don't know." Well, now you're gambling that there's going to be a buyer out there that is a right fit for your business mm-hmm. and that they can be found in your area at the right time and that they qualify for credit and all that kind of stuff. And so when I talk about strategies like let's be open to financing more, let's think about the buyer, what kind of down payment they have. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to open or broaden the pool of prospective buyers. If you're a dentist and you have a small practice and you can really only sell it to another dentist, then you have a very small pool of potential buyers. If you are a roofer and you've got no systems processes, no methods for doing estimates, no ways to manage your crews, you can really only sell your business to another person that understands roofing. Mm-hmm. But if you implement all of those systems and give yourself the tools and the, you know, the formulas for estimating and the, the methods for organizing, you start using software that organizes and schedules your jobs and all this kind of stuff. Well, now you can sell it to a guy that wants to get out of the post office because you can teach them how to use all the tools that you've created, right? And so it, it broadens the pool of potential buyers. One of the one of the biggest sort of roadblocks or speed bumps is when businesses own real estate and the seller will often take the attitude of, you know, I want to sell the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. And what they do when they take that position is they say, now I need a buyer who's got enough money for a down payment on the business and the building. And so now we're talking about someone who maybe has two or three times the cash for the down payment versus someone who just is going to buy the business. And so you just shrank the pool of potential buyers. And the more money that a person has, I mean, the more power they have as a buyer. People with a lot of money know that they wield a big stick, right? And so though they have more negotiating power when they come in to look at buying a business, you want to try to solve the problem of how a buyer will buy the business. Think of a car dealer. If there was no such thing as a car loan or a car lease, how many $40,000 cars would be sold? Mm-hmm. Not very many, right? The car dealer understands this. This is why when you go into the car dealership, they've got all the different finance and leasing programs all lined up there for you. They know that if you're eager to buy, they want to make it as easy as possible. They want to smooth everything out for you so they yep. can sign a few documents and drive away, right? And that's that's the kind of attitude you want to take when it comes to selling your business. You want to figure out how is this person likely going to buy my business? How can I make it easier? How can I demonstrate my success and my results so that they can in turn go and demonstrate these things to a banker who might make a loan, for example? You want to take the attitude that a car dealer has. 
how can I make it easier for someone to buy this big expensive thing I have called a business? Yeah, I mean, you made the statement earlier that buying a business it's not it's not a real estate. You know, real real estate is an asset kind of thing. But what kept coming to my mind as you were talking was if I owned a home and I'm thinking about putting on an addition or I'm thinking about making changes to the home and so forth, I can do it one of two ways. I can go out and go, well, this is what I like and this is what I'm going to do. I don't care what anybody else thinks and not take into consideration that you might have to sell that asset one day. That's a possible choice. But another choice could be, I got a buddy who's a real estate agent, pick up the phone and, hey, Phil, can you come come over? I'm thinking about doing some changes in my home. I'd love to get your opinion at from a real estate agent perspective. Mm-hmm. What is this going to do to my home when it comes time to selling it? Kind of thing. And your buddy comes over and, and says, yeah, that'll be okay. You'll get you'll get some return on your investment for that, or you get your money back for that particular. No, that's a cosmetic thing. It won't affect the value of your home. You're not going to get. You're gonna you're gonna pour three grand into that, but you're not going to get a, a a penny back out of that because it's just not value. There's no value from a buyer's perspective. That yeah. If you're in a business, it wouldn't hurt to call somebody up like yourself, even though you have no plans to sell the business at the moment, but. Have that conversation saying, here's my business, here's my cash flow looks like I want it to be valuable and attractive down the road. Should I ever need that point? What what should I be doing in terms of changes to make it more valuable? The 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 biggest I'll I'll bring up two points about that. So so if you're going to acquire something, like if you're if you need to add another truck to your business, for example, I mean you can get financing on a truck, maybe you can lease a truck. So just stop and think, you know, what if I was to sell the business next year? And so you just ask the question when you're talking with the finance person. Mm-hmm. If I sell my business, could this lease be assumed by somebody? Right. Right. Because if they can assume the payments on the lease, that's the same as handing you the balance. Because mm-hmm. uh, if they just gave you the money, you'd end up paying the leasing company. Right. Right. So you ask that question, is this lease assumable? So you're you're kind of building in a solution into your business that a buyer could take advantage of to help acquire the business. That's the first thing. The second thing is I'll sometimes run into business owners who will say, I just replaced these pieces of equipment. So my business is worth more, right? Mm-hmm. And and this is the tricky thing. The value of a business is based on its cash flow, period. People are paying to buy a cash flow. It's simply assumed that everything required to make the cash flow operate is included in the price to buy the cash flow. So it doesn't matter if your equipment is new or not. I mean, someone might like that about your business, see it as a positive attribute, but it doesn't make the cash flow more valuable. Now, on the flip side of that, if you've been planning to sell for 10 years and you've defer, been deferring all maintenance and not replacing anything, and someone comes in and sees that everything is being held together with duct tape and twine and about to fall apart, then what the buyer is going to say is, in order to make this cash flow carry on into the future, I'm going to have to pay you and buy a bunch of other new gear. Mm. But what they're going to do is they're going to rightly say, if I have to pay the equipment dealer for a bunch of stuff, then I can't pay you as much. Because what I'm buying is the cash flow. 
And all the money I have to lay out, whether it's to equipment dealers or to the seller of the business, that is the investment I'm making in the cash flow. So you should be operating things per usual, doing capital expenditures, replacing things, keeping things properly maintained. And it all comes down to the cash flow. And if you're going to do something new in your business, you know that advice that you would ask your real estate agent about what will this do to the value of my home? The question I would ask is, what's it going to do to your cash flow? Is this going to allow you to serve more customers or is it going to allow you to reduce your cost of serving customers? Mm-hmm. Or is it going to allow you to create a stronger contractual bond with your customers? Um, I want to know that any money that you're spending in the business is going to be to improve the business. And this is one of those things that gets at lifestyle versus you know a business is I, I have seen many business owners get into the trap of wanting to enjoy the the bounty of their business within the confines of their business so that they don't have that tax event of taking money out, you know? And so um, the one thing about paying taxes, Andy, is that there is no more uncertain of a sign that you are doing well and making money than if you have a tax bill. Mm-hmm. And so many people out there manage their businesses in a way to minimize taxes, you know, they'll put personal expenses in their business or they'll, they'll, maybe they won't declare some cash sales or something like that. And, you know, look at your tax rate. If you're pocketing a dollar because you think it helps you save 32 cents, what that's going to do is it's going to make it difficult, more difficult for a buyer to get financing for your business, which means you're going to end up holding more paper on the deal. If you can convince a buyer that the profit really is there. If you can't convince a buyer that the profit really is there, then that dollar you pocketed, in addition to saving you 35 cents from Uncle Sam, just cost you maybe $253 from the buyer, right? Mm -hmm. Which is 10 times more than what you think you just saved from the tax man. And so that's one of the big things that I run into all the time is people who are are playing these games to try to to maximize their um their gains today and try to minimize their tax bill and what they do is they end up creating a real problem as far as conveying value and demonstrating results to a potential buyer and their bankers yeah so let let's take a moment step away from assets and cash flow and this question is probably more geared towards somebody who's uh buying a, a large small company or a medium-sized company with a with a number of employees how much should a buyer take a look at the intangibles like company when they're looking to acquire a company how how in your mind from what you've seen through all the companies you've helped sell how important are the intangibles in the purchase well they're they're very important and they're becoming more so. So you can put them into different categories like customers. So when we look when we look at customers, we look at things like customer concentration. Like are there a couple of customers that are really big, for example? There's employees. Employees are becoming increasingly difficult to find. Mm-hmm. So I've had many people look at businesses where they, you know, inflation has been running pretty high the last couple of years but maybe there haven't been any wage increases. So when we look at the business, we're like, hmm, you know, 
one of the things that's going to have to be done immediately almost is for the wages of the employees to be increased. And that, of course, is going to have an impact on the cash flow. And so it's, it, it is important. Oftentimes, if you're already in an industry, if you're a buyer in a particular industry and you're trying to grow through acquisition, you can run into an issue of having to readdress all of the compensation in both companies if there's some kind of significant mismatch. Because if you acquire the company and the people are better paid in the company you're acquiring, then eventually your own original employees are going to discover that. It's going to have to be addressed, right? (laughs) And so there's there's a lot of those kinds of considerations. In the world of small business, culture is typically driven by the owner. Mm-hmm. You know, because the owner is often the captain of the ship, the the leader in the business, and they kind of set the tone. I'm a big fan of processes and systems and well laid out responsibility and tasks and you know things like that, so that people don't become paralyzed at the prospect of having turnover. I once had a, a meeting between a restaurant owner and a prospective buyer, and the buyer asked the seller, you know. How do you know the employees are going to stick around? Because I've never owned a restaurant. I'm really going to be relying on those people to help me manage mm. this. And the seller looked at him and said, it's a restaurant. Within a year, they'll almost all be gone. And that's why I've developed this particular process that helps mm. me identify people and train them more quickly and get them up to speed more quickly, et cetera, et cetera. And then he explained how he deals with the issue of owning a business in a high turnover industry. And that explanation of the system is what gave the buyer the confidence to move forward because he realized, you know, I I can't be afraid that employees will leave because they always do. I mean, nobody can stay in a position forever. And sometimes it's completely unforeseen. You know, employees can be very loyal and dedicated and helpful and want to stay with the company forever and get sick, you know? So it's, it's something that everyone's going to have to deal with. And I've, I've run into many situations where people have done acquisitions and there's been a mismatch between the style of leadership that the new owner has and the employees that are in the business. And in some of those cases, over a couple of years, the entire staff ends up turning over. Mm-hmm. You know, it's these are just some of the reasons why small businesses are risky asset classes. Yeah, well, we we can look at the recent events of my ex-employer Boeing over the whole corporate culture thing, going back to their merger between McDonald's, Douglas, and Boeing. It's a different kind of acquisition because it was a merger, but corporate culture played itself out through the years to to be where Boeing is today. Was it a competition? Was it like one culture against another? Did the two sides no, stay it was in their a, own it was camps? a culture of at Boeing. It was hearing excellence and quality it was the driver of the culture and expenses took I won't say a back seat, but we're second or third in line behind that. Whereas at McDonnell Douglas, it was all about bottom line. It was more of the Jack Wells GE kind of mentality that won out. And so right. we saw a suffering of quality of product because of it over the years. Two, two, two questions to finish this out. The first one, what is one thing in the first 100 days 
that somebody buying a company should be wary of in the first hundred days after the acquisition to, you know, help it help it along and make it a successful transition. In the first hundred days, you shouldn't yeah. be trying to change anything, and you should definitely be looking for anything that may be out of place vis-a-vis what you were told by the seller about the business. So if there is a problem with what you were told, what we would call a a material misrepresentation, you want to know as soon as possible that that thing exists. The first 100 days is also one just of absorption, learning. You've got access to the seller usually during a transition period initially. And so you want to make sure that you're recording and making notes and documenting everything that you can about the business. I'm a big fan of, sorry, I'm a big fan of transition programs where the seller spends a lot of, some amount of time up front, but then is recallable over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. So as you settle in and you kind of learn things and and the sort of once in a while situations pop up, you can then go back and address those with the seller and get their feedback and advice on them and things like that. Yeah. So David, we greatly appreciate you coming on to the podcast today and, and sharing your wisdom. I think oftentimes this subject sort of gets a backseat to a lot of other things about business or running the business and people don't pay enough attention to this this thing calling the merger and acquisition and the possibility that you might have to sell it or offload it per se down the road because of a life situation. So it's a it's an important topic. Here on the Generate Your Value podcast, we ask all of our guests the same question to sort of end, end the episode with, and it has a lot to do with the title of the podcast. And that question is, David, And there's no right or wrong answer. It's about what's in your heart. What do the words generate your value mean to you? Oh, well, to me, generate my value means accomplishing the mission that I've set for myself in business, which is simply to help people avoid bad deals, both buyers and sellers. Because a bad deal for a seller often means that they're not doing a deal, and that means wasting time in their life. Mm-hmm. And a bad deal for a buyer is actually the same thing. It usually means that they've end up, ended up overpaying. And the only way to work themselves out of that problem is by spending years of their life working out the issue. You know, time is money. We spend our time to earn money. And when something happens that causes us to lose money in an unfair or unjust way, really what someone has done is they've come and taken part of our life. And so that's what drives me to help people avoid bad deals. Well, we can't thank you enough once again for coming on, sharing your wisdom. If somebody was interested in your services or interested in doing the same thing you're doing or something of that nature, what's the best way they could reach out and and get a hold of you? Um, The best thing is to come to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com. And from there, there's links to all the other places I'm online. I've got a YouTube channel with 500 videos. I've got some books and online courses, and I do consulting work with people. And if you head over to davidcbarnett.com, I've got an email list too that you can sign up for. So that would be the place to go. Well, for our listening audience, we hope through our conversation today, David, we call them golden nuggets. Hopefully they got some golden nuggets out of our conversation that they can integrate into their life or into their business and and that they might generate value either for themselves or for others through the process of listening and taking their time to join us today in this conversation. If you found this to be helpful, please share it. 
the value doesn't get created unless you share it. And it lands in other people's lives, lands in their lap, so to speak. And they have an opportunity to listen to it as well, is when that value actually gets created to the multiple or the multitude, if you will, in the world. So I can't encourage you enough to share this episode with those that you feel like would get some value out of it, help us move it along from that perspective. And join us next Tuesday for another great episode of the podcast where we have another great guest just like David to join us to share their wisdom to help generate value in your life in some particular subject or area. So can't encourage you enough to hit that, David. It's labeled subscribe, but we call it the follow button here on the Generate Your Value podcast so that people can follow us on our journey to generate value in people's lives. So that being said, have a great day, have a great week, and we'll see you next time here on the Generate Your Value podcast. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of the Generate Your Value podcast. If you find our conversations to be useful in your life, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss an episode. You can find me online on Instagram at The Fitzpreneur, Facebook, and LinkedIn. For information on my coaching services, if you're in the Atlanta area, go to www.generateyourvalue.com. You can also find me and my company on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Simply search for Generate Your Value on those platforms. Once again, thanks for joining us for today's podcast, and we invite you to generate your value in this world. Oh,